The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. <clears throat> Today is the fifth day of our seven-day summer session. It's the 9th of January 2020 and we're going to continue uh, reading from the collected works of Chinnell translated and with an introduction by Robert E. Buswell Jr. And we'll continue with um, the same chapter, Straight Talk on the True Mind. And we, we left off yesterday um, about halfway through a section entitled The True Mind Amid Delusion. Chinnell says, in Sung Chao's treatises, it is written, written, Between heaven and earth and within the universe is contained a jewel. It is concealed in the mountain of form. This is, this is an image of um, our true mind hidden in the midst of, of delusion. He continues, this refers to the true mind amid entanglements. Furthermore, Tzu En said, ordinary men originally possess the Dharmakaya, which is identical to that of all the Buddhas, the, the, the Dharma body we talked about yesterday. But as they are screened from it by falsity, they have it but do not recognize it. This innate dharmakaya, which is present within the entanglements of defilement, has been given the name Tathagatagarbha. Uh, we talked about this yesterday also. Tathagatagarbha meaning um, the womb of the one who has gone or come to suchness, the womb of the Buddha. And um, it, it's an image that fits with this notion of our uh, true mind being being um, hidden from view. You could say that as long as um, this true mind is hidden from us, it's like a, a potential that we have. It's like we we have um, this being, this this being in us that. Um, is only potential until we realize it. In this case, give birth to it, bring it into the world. Pei Shu said, ordinary people are those who are fully light enlightened the whole day long without ever knowing it. Ordinary people, the way of talking of um, sentient beings. Sometimes you have um, sentient beings contrasted with Buddhas. Ordinary people are those who are fully enlightened the whole day long without even knowing it. Therefore, we know that even amid the troubles of the dusty world, the true mind remains unaffected by those troubles. 
like a piece of white jade which has been thrown in the mud, its colour remains unchanged. Everyone, everyone has this, this um, jewel within them. Not only, not only us, each of us, but everyone we meet. To remember this is to to realize why it's so important that we treat everyone with love, with respect, with kindness. And, and ourselves too. So many of us can get caught up in um, self-hatred. Sabotaging kinds of thinking. If we, if we understand that our true mind is like this piece of jade in the mud but unstained next section is, is headed extinguishing delusion concerning the true mind question when the true mind is beset by delusion, it becomes an ordinary person. How can we escape from delusion and achieve sanctity? I'm not sure that this word sanctity is quite right, but um, it's the one used here, and I can't haven't been able to come up with a, another one that's better. Um, if you could say complete wisdom and compassion here. When there is no place for the deluded mind, that is Bodhi. Bodhi means awakening. Samsara and Nirvana are originally equal. Jung Jha said, The mind is the sense base. Dharmas are the dusty objects. These two are like a dirty streak on a mirror. When the streak is removed, the mirror's brightness appears. When the mind and dharmas have both been forgotten, the nature is then true. What do you mean by when mind and dharmas have both been forgotten? Um, when when uh, we're no longer caught up in, in ideas about self and things or subject and object when this is forgotten then we we see true nature this is indeed the removal of delusion and the the accomplishment of truth question 
Zhuangzi said, The mind's heat is like blazing fire. Its cold is like frozen ice. Its speed is such that it can pass beyond the four seas of the world in the twinkling of an eye. In repose it is like a deep pond. In movement it flies far into the sky. This indeed is the human mind. It's the end of the quote from Chuangzi. This is Chuangzi's statement concerning the fact that the ordinary person's mind cannot be controlled or subdued. We are not yet clear, however, through which Dharma method the Son school proposes to gain control over the deluded mind. Chino, the deluded mind can be controlled through the Dharma of no mind. Question. If people have no mind, they are the same as grass or trees. Please give us some expedient descriptions so that we can understand this idea of no mind. Chinul. <coughs> when I said no mind, I did not mean that there is no mind essence. It is only when there are no things in the mind that we use the term no mind. It is like speaking of an empty bottle. We mean there is no thing in the bottle, not that there is no bottle. We do not say that it is empty to express the idea that it is made of no material. An ancestor said, If you have no concerns in your mind and no mind in your concerns, then naturally your mind will be empty yet numinous, calm yet sublime. Um, the, the master who said this was, was uh, Dershan, <coughs> Toksan in Japanese. It is mind in this sense that is meant here. Accordingly, we refer to the absence of the deluded mind, not to the absence, absence of the true mind's sublime functioning. All the explanations of the past ancestors about the practice of no mind are unique. And now I will give a synopsis of these different techniques and briefly describe ten of them. Just um, just a comment on this statement of, of Toksan's. Um, if you have no concerns in your mind and no mind in your concerns, then naturally your mind will be empty yet numinous, calm yet sublime. No concerns in in your mind, that's pretty obvious what he means there. And no mind in your concerns. When we do have concerns um, arise in the mind, it, how do we how do we relate or react to them? To um, get caught up in aversion or attachment solidifies the thoughts. So, what Doksan is suggesting is to approach the the concerns in a spirit of, of no mind. 
understanding that that thoughts are just thoughts. You can give an example of 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 what happens when we we don't do that. We can um, if we say we um, think of something scary, and then immediately um, we we have a physical reaction to that thought of a scary thing as if it was actually right there happening to us. So we maybe we we tense up or um, our, our um, hands get cold, or we, we get hackles raised on the on the back of the neck. And these, these physical reactions are in fact that we've 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 scared ourselves with our own thought. But if we if we experience that thought and know that it's a thought, then we don't fall into that trap, um, which is sometimes sometimes called cognitive fusion. In Sashin, as we get more concentrated and more settled, we have more uh, chance to catch ourselves sooner with with our thoughts and see them for what they are. And when we do, when we do see them, then they they dissolve. They they have no power. But then he goes on to give these. Um, uh, examples of, of, of 10 different techniques that one can do, uh, use in order to um, practice no mind. Now we won't look at all of them, um, some of them are a bit ob obscure, uh, they're not practices that, that we do, but um, just to give, just to give, take a, take a few and look at them because they have some valuable stuff in them. Number one, attention. This means that when we are practicing, we should always cut off thoughts and guard against their arising. As soon as a thought arises, we destroy it through attention. Nevertheless, once deluded thoughts have been destroyed through attention and no subsequent thoughts occur, we should abandon this aware wisdom. When delusion and awareness are both forgotten, it is called no mind. So, um, quite uh, strong language. When when thoughts occur, um, we should destroy them through attention. This is really just what uh, I was mentioning a moment ago. That that. Um, our thoughts don't really have any power um, when we see them clearly, see the thoughts as thoughts. And uh, many people would have um, experienced this of when, when really seeing a thought, the way in which it, it, it dissolves. But then he says we should also abandon um, this aware wisdom, this this um, um, 
Sounds not doesn't sound like something one should abandon. But if you if you um, hold on to this aware wisdom, then it of course it becomes a thought in the mind. So what he's really saying for us to abandon is um, the thought I'm aware or the thought I'm wise. Um, one uh, Tibetan teacher talks of of pride as being like the, a ghost that follows our good deeds. We have some some little success in in uh, uh, stilling the mind and reaching a place maybe of clarity, and then we we go wild, congratulating ourselves for it. He goes on, when delusion and awareness are both forgotten, this is called no mind. As an ancestor stated, do not fear the arousing of thoughts. Only be concerned lest your awareness of them be tardy. This could be, be a, it's a great motto. Do not fear the arising of thoughts. Only be concerned lest your awareness of them be tardy. It's not noticing them immediately, not, not um, letting them um, get, get sticky that is the problem. Actually, we can't, we can't directly stop thoughts from arising, but we do have a lot of choice about what happens when they do. And then he quotes, um, affirming the faith in mind, as he has been all through this text. Do not go searching for the truth. Just let those fond opinions go. If we're if we're um, avidly uh, searching for the truth, then there's there's self there doing the searching, wanting to uh, grasp the truth. Just let those fond opinions go. Just get so involved in your practice, whether it's the breath or um, shikantaza or a koan. Just be that koan. And then there's, there's nobody searching. Our sense of self is, is uh, largely made up of our opinions about things, cloaked in, in these opinions. So maybe we don't quite see that it is actually the I, me and mine that is uh, expressing itself. Next one. Number two, rest. 
This means when we are practicing, we do not think of either good or evil. As soon as any mental state arises, we rest. When we meet with conditions, we rest. The ancients said, Be like a strip of unbleached silk cloth. Be cool, clear water. Be like an incense burner in an old shrine. Then you can cut through the spool of silk and leave behind all discrimination. There's a very good little uh, book about um, working with anxiety that I ordered recently um, and it's been around for quite a few time, I think it was written in the 60s, but the, the author of the book, who is a GP in Australia, she she has this little um, uh, series of, of actions that she recommends for people working with anxiety, and it's um, <coughs> face it, and this is in terms of one's symptoms of, of anxiety, uh, face it, accept it, float and give it time. I think we can relate this float to Chinul's rest here. And it, and it, and it relates to, to not thinking of good or evil. He says, when we're practicing, we do not think either good or evil. Of course, thinking good and evil is giving rise to strong um, reactions to what we think of as good or evil, aversion towards evil, um, attraction towards the good, good, and efforts to to hold on to what is good and get rid of what is bad. Instead, Jinnal is suggesting is that we we rest, we we don't fight, and this is just the same in in this book about anxiety, because if you if you give rise to your aversion to your anxiety, you actually just stimulate the, the um, body um, mechanism that has um, excited the anxiety in the first place. You, you uh, excrete adrenaline which creates more tension, which um, strengthens the, the, the anxious feelings and before you know it you can be into a panic attack. And people have probably experienced this in their sitting, maybe not to the extent of a panic attack. But the way in which we can we can get into this vicious cycle with certain um, mental states that we we uh, if we feel strong aversion to them, they can seem to be ironclad before too long. But to to encounter um, something obstructive with this floating, sort of a way of acknowledging um, the insubstantiality of what we're encountering. Float around it, soften, cool it. This is, it gives us this little poem which beautifully Express, expresses this. Be like a strip of unbleached silk cloth. Be like cool, clear water. 
Be like an incense burner in an old shrine. Then you can cut through the spool of silk and leave behind all discrimination. Be like a strip of unbleached silk cloth. Plain. Uncomplicated. Be like cool, clear water. Be like an incense burner in an old shrine. You can imagine the incense burner in an old shrine is, is um, completely cold, not, not in use much. Maybe occasionally a traveler comes by. in a kind of deep, timeless sleep. Then you can cut through the spool of silk and leave all behind all discrimination. My guess is this refers to um, being like a, a cocoon inside its, its um, or an embryo, what do you call it, a, um, forget the word, the butterfly in its previous um, form inside the cocoon. These um, silk, silkworms, when they, um, they actually spin the silk around them and so they're, they're, they're caught inside the, this um, silk cocoon and they have to cut through, they have to eat their way out of it. So I think this image is talking about uh, getting, uh, uh, being, being bound and, and needing to cut right through those threads that bind us. And that cutting through is um, leaving behind all discrimination. Think of the, the uh, Basui's instructions for Zazen. Cut, cut, cut especially for, for um, koan practice, to use the uh, koan like <coughs> uh, Manjushri sword, to when we, we see a thought arising as a thought, to lop it off. It's a clean thing. It's not the same as trying to suppress something where we haven't really seen its emptiness, its insubstantiality. third one is um, efface the mind but preserve objects. This means that when we are practicing we extinguish deluded thoughts and do not concern ourselves with the external sense fears. We are only concerned with extinguishing the mind for when the deluded mind is extinguished what danger can sensual objects present? This is the teaching advocated by the ancients take away the person but leave the objects. There is a saying which goes, in this place there is fragrant grass, in the whole city there are no old friends. Grass is often used as, a, as a, an image in the teachings, especially in the Zen teachings, for um, something that we can get entangled in. But here 
this, this fragrant grass. And in the whole city, no old friends. Guessing that that means no uh, attachments. No cherished opinions. Layman Pang said, You need only keep no mind amid the myriads of things. Then how can you be hindered by the things which constantly surround you? This is the method of extinguishing delusion by effacing the mind but preserving objects. We'll skip to, to number six, which is preserve both mind and objects. This means that when we are practicing, re mind remains in its place and objects remain in their place. If there is a time when the mind and objects come in contact with each other, then the mind does not grasp at the objects and the objects do not intrude upon the mind. If neither of them contacts the other, then naturally deluded thoughts will not arise and there will be no obstacles to the path. It is also said, in the mountains covered with a million blossoms, a stroller has lost his way home. I don't know if it's related, but it reminded me of uh, one of the koans in the um, Hikigan Roku. It's um, case 36. And um, in this story, there. Um, a priest, master, um, goes for a, a long walk in the mountains. Uh, and, and I'm reading this from uh, Shoto Harada's book, The Moon by the Window. Um, and when he returns to the monastery, um, the head monk is waiting for him. And the monk asks, Master, where have you been? And then uh, his master, Chosha, responds, um, and, and, and Shoto Harada is elaborating on what's in, in the actual koan. He says, I went to the mountain to play a little. The cherry and the peach flowers were so beautiful, and while I was looking at them, they pulled me right into the deep mountains. And then the clover and the dandelions were blooming, and the butterflies were dancing, and while looking at them, I arrived home again. Shodorada comments, He was saying that the meaning, meaning of life is found in the encounters of each and every moment. Although we need to have goals, if we aren't acting playfully within each and every second of realizing our goals, if we think while in the midst of living and struggling that we have to wait until later to play, then we aren't realizing the true value of life. So you can relate this to um, this uh, phrase of Chinnell's, um, preserve both mind and objects. 
And then he says further, people who work from Monday to Friday often think they have to wait until the weekend to be happy. After five days of suffering through our work, we try to make up with that with two days of being happy. What kind of life is this? The samadhi of the Buddha isn't about waiting for the future, but about finding joy no matter where we are, no matter how difficult or how miserable our circumstances. It is about living wholly and totally in each instant. Our lives cannot be lived in a vague way. We have to keep our sight on each footstep and live fully and thoroughly in each second. This this master who, who talks about the the flowers and the and the clover and the dandelions, he was completely present in each moment of his walking in the mountains. Life isn't about enduring pain every day and looking forward to something else that will come along later and far away. When each and every moment is true, when our goal is to have a deep worth, to be complete, then in each and every moment we will find deep wonder and amazement and joy and the value of life will be clear. We must hold this kind of life precious. It's going back to the verse from this, from this koan in the blue cliff the record or the, or the lines. First I went following the fragrant grasses. Now I return chasing falling leaves. a couple more of these. Number seven, internal and external are all the same essence. This means that when we're practicing, the mountains and rivers of the great earth, the sun, the moon, the stars and the constellations, the internal body and the external world, as well as all dharmas, are all viewed as being the same essence of the true mind. That essence is clear, empty and bright, without a hair's breadth of differentiation. The world systems of the chiliocosm, as numerous as grains of sand, have fused into one whole. Where would the deluded mind be able to arise? Dharma Master Sung Chao said, Heaven and earth and I have the same root. The myriad things and I have the same essence. Heaven and earth and I have the same root. The myriad things and I have the same essence. This is the method of extinguishing delusion by recognizing that internal and external are all the same essence. This is one of the things um, that we can come to realize when, when doing shikantaza. We get to a place where, where sounds are no longer experienced as being out there. 
we, we experience our own body as um, containing and including everything. Number eight, internal and external are all the same function. This means that when we're practicing, we take up all the dharmas of the physical universe, internal or external, mental or physical, as well as all motion and activity, and regard them all as the sublime functioning of the true mind. As soon as any thought or mental state arises, it is then the appearance of this sublime function. Since all things are this sublime functioning, where can the deluded mind stand? As Jung Jha said, the real nature of ignorance is the Buddha nature. The phantom void body is the Dharma body. We came across this quote before. This, this, this uh, leaving behind a narrow sense of, of who and what we are, and and inheriting our our patrimony, our our birthright, which is this this Dharma body. Qigong said in his Song of the Twelve Hours, During the peaceful dawn, the hour of the tiger, inside the crazy mechanism hides a man of the path. He doesn't know that, sitting or lying down, it is true originally the path. How busy he is, bearing suffering and hardship. Can, we can relate to um, often feeling like we're we're a crazy mechanism. This, this body-mind of ours can seem like that. But it is it hidden in this, in this body-mind of ours. There is a person of the path. So all of these um, and the... Uh, practices that Chinul um, elaborates he says they are practices that are endeavorless endeavors which do not involve the applied power of the existent mind do not involve the applied power of the existent mind um, we have to be careful that whatever practice we're doing um, doesn't reinforce the small self. And, and that's what these are aimed at, at avoiding. To be coming at practice from this, this awareness or understanding of no self rather than um, from a small self that... that, that um, attaches and um, wants to um, acquire something from our practice. Next section is um, headed the true mind in the four postures, postures. Question. In the explanation you just gave about extinguishing delusion, 
we are not yet clear whether these methods should be practiced only during sitting and meditation or whether they ought to be carried through into walking, standing and all other bodily postures as well. Chinul. The sutras and the shastras often talk about sitting practice because it is easier to obtain results that way. Nevertheless, the training should also be carried through into the other postures and over a long period of time it will gradually mature. Um, some times people at workshops they they um, wonder why we 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 put ourselves through these these difficult sitting postures we're not used to. We don't sit on the floor normally, and and so that they're challenging. But the reason is that um, it's easier if we're sitting still and with our limbs gathered towards the center of the body. It's it's easier to um, to practice, generally speaking. And he goes on to qu quote um, one of his favorite texts all through the, this section, uh, The Awakening of Faith. If you want to cult cultivate tranquility, you should find a quiet place and sip, uh, sit upright with proper attention. Your attention should not be based upon the breath, nor upon any shape or form, nor upon voidness, nor upon earth, water, fire, air or wind, nor upon seeing, hearing, sensing and knowing. All thoughts should be discarded as they appear. Even the thought of discarding should be banished. As all dharmas are originally free of thought, no thoughts arise and no thoughts cease. Moreover, you should try not to follow the mind. But if you do have thoughts which become involved externally with the sense spheres, you should subsequently remove these thoughts mentally. If the mind is agitated and distracted, it must be collected and fixed in right thought. Right thought means that you should be aware that there is only mind and that the external sense spheres are non-existent. This mind is, furthermore, devoid of any distinctive signs of its own and thus can never be ascertained. So there's a, there's a lot in these, there's these practice instructions which warrants some comment. There's this long list of things um, that uh, we're told our, our uh, attention should not be based upon. Uh, breath, any shape or form, water, fire, air, wind, uh, wind, earth, so, um, and I think that's a way to, to refer to the body, the four elements the body's made up of. Not on seeing, hearing, sensing, knowing. So then you immediately, the thought is, well, what, what do I base it on? And the point here is, it's really, it's really a description of, of um, shikantaza or silent illumination. The point of which is. Um, giving up everything, letting go of all forms in the mind, not um, attaching to anything, letting things come, letting them have a certain life and letting them go, not depending on anything, but just developing 
this bright awareness. And j just in case you 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 would were thinking that you could um, rely on on uh, uh, the mind, it says right at the end, the mind is furthermore devoid of any distinctive signs of its own, and thus can never be ascertained. Can never be grasped. Was because of course to grasp is to limit, to ascertain is to put in a box. So we're called on to, to let go of even the mind, ultimately. It also says that the external sense fears are non-existent. This doesn't mean that there's absolutely no such thing as objective reality, but that from a phenomenological position, Point of view, um, effectively there are no um, the, the sense spheres um, are non-existent, as we can't experience them except through the mind. There's no way to do that. We just have to look at the way we, we um, experience something, um, say uh, a, 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 the sound of a bird, the song of a bird, that what actually happens is that we don't experience the, that song of the bird out there where the bird is singing, but we get uh, vibrations hit our eardrum and then they are translated into electrical signals which go to the brain which then processes them, them and then we hear the tui or the, or the minor. So it's, it's, a, it's completely happening um, here, not there. The actions, the uh, the instructions continue. Um, which I was quoting them. If you get up from sitting, then at all times and during all activities, whether going, coming, moving, or being still, you should constantly be attentive to expedients which will enable you to adapt your contemplation to the situation at hand. So. Um, applying your practice to uh, whatever is going on at any given moment. After long training, the practice will mature and the mind will become stabilized. After the mind is stable, it gradually becomes sharper and accordingly will be able to enter the samadhi of true suchness and completely subdue the defilements. The mind of faith will grow and your practice will rapidly reach the stage of irreversibility. Just see here that it, he says, after long training, this happens. It takes great patience. O 
Only those who are skeptical, faithless and slanderous or who have grave, grave transgressions and karmic obstacles or are proud and lazy will be unable to enter. So these are the these kind of um, common obstacles um, to practice, to really being able to enter into the truth. Especially, we could say, pride, the sense of um, an inflated self. Because it, um, to, to be pleased with ourselves closes us down. To it, we become less receptive to the teaching. So he says, according to this passage, the practice should continue throughout the four postures. Jung Cha said, uh, walking is son, sitting is son, during speech, silence, action and stillness, the essence is at peace. According to this passage, also, the practice should continue throughout the four postures. But generally speaking, if the efficacy of a person's practice is such that they cannot pacify the mind even while sitting, then how can they expect to do it while walking, standing or otherwise? I think this is only partly true because sometimes for different reasons, um, people may find um, the walking or the, or the standing or lying down as um, more helpful than, than sitting. This can be relating to um, uh, physical things that are going on. Um, psychological things sometimes. So um, all of these all of these postures have their their different um, kind of pros and cons to them. He goes on, um, for someone whose practice has matured, even if a thousand saints appeared, she would not be surprised. Even if 10,000 Maras and goblins showed up, she would not turn her head. Maras um, are um, embodiments of delusion within good Buddhist cosmology. Thus, in walking, standing and sitting, how could she not maintain her practice? If a person wanted to take revenge on an enemy, he would not be able to forget it, whatever the time and whatever the action, whether walking, standing, sitting, reclining, eating or drinking. If he is in love, it is the same too. Hatred and love are matters in which the mind plays an active role. If we can easily keep such things in the mind, even when the mind is active, why do we doubt that our present practice, in which no mind is involved, could not continue throughout the four postures? We need only fear that our faith is lacking or that we do not try. For if we exert ourselves in all the deportments and have faith, the path will never be lost. This is a good point that Chinnall is making here. Is, you know, when you, when you, you um, experience strong emotion, hate, love, 
then we can feel it every single moment of 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 our day. So it's it's possible to um, keep in mind something constantly. Strong these strong passions can can exist through all our all our um, positions: walking, standing, sitting, lying down, eating, drinking, washing. So knowing that that is is possible, then why not our no mind? Our clear attention, our our koan, the breath. To do our best, that's what he is telling us here. To exert ourselves. To do our best even when our practice feels disjointed, stale, flat. And probably just as importantly, to do our best when the mind is particularly clear, concentrated, joyful. Because often we fall into the trap of, when we get into one of these clearer, more peaceful states, that we slacken off. Well, our time is up. We'll stop and recite the four vows. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.